Today's Bible reading comes from John chapter 16, verse 16 to 33. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that. They, went, they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I say, In a little while it will see me no more. And then after a little while it will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving to birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So I have been speaking figuratively. In a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask me in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and entered the world. Now, I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you not believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see, let us say, this vessel lying here to be a little vase or something else? And he said, I see it to be so. And I replied to him, can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Neither can I call myself anything else than what I am. A Christian. 
This is an excerpt from the diary of a woman named Perpetua. She was about the age of a lot of us in her early 20s uh, with an infant son when she was thrown in prison for being a Christian alongside her servant Felicity who was pregnant at the time. This happened in the year 203. As young mothers with most of their lives ahead of them and families who loved them, Perpetua and Felicity were given the choice of making an offering to a Roman god and rejecting Christianity or being killed in an arena as part of a festival of games. Neither woman gave up her faith. In fact, their teacher who had been preparing them for baptism voluntarily joined them in prison so that he could baptise them and share the Lord's Supper with them knowing that he too would be killed. A few days before these games commenced, Felicity gave birth and her baby was adopted by a Christian sister. The last part of Perpetua's diary written by her own hand reads, of what was done in the games themselves, let him write who will. And the diary was finished by an eyewitness who writes about how they entered the arena singing. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. Perpetua even made sure to keep her hair and tunic in order, lest she should appear to be mourning in her glory. A savage cow of all animals was released into the arena, which knocked over Felicity, but Perpetua helped her back up again. Ultimately, they were unharmed by any of the animals. So the Empress Severus ordered them to be beheaded instead. The eyewitness tells us that Perpetua had to guide the soldier's blade to her throat because his hands were shaking so much. Perpetua and Felicity died there on the sands of a Roman arena 1,800 years ago. And it was a death which they chose. I'm sure they didn't want to die. I know I don't, especially not before getting a chance to meet and raise my own baby in a couple of weeks' time. And yet they were so sure of the truth of the gospel, so firmly in Christ, that being killed by beasts or gladiators in an arena was preferable to giving up their faith. Even if giving up their faith meant being able to raise their kids and return to their families. And that confidence was built upon and permeated by this remarkable sense of peace that you can feel as you hear their story. They entered the arena defiant, singing, and had enough presence of mind to keep their hair up and their hems out of the mud to make sure the spectators knew it was a moment of victory for them. A peace that defies understanding. I don't have that peace when I have to talk to new people at greeting time, let alone in the face of my own execution. Yet that peace is exactly what's on offer from Jesus in our passage tonight. The verses we heard read, in fact, all the chapters we've been preaching through these past few weeks, this final discourse between Jesus and his closest followers, culminates at the very end with these words. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These are the last words Jesus says to his followers before moving to pray in the garden before his arrest. 
They are both a summary of what he said so far, as well as a key to help us understand it. And it's a key I'm very grateful to have. John can be confusing and roundabout at the best of times. So I'm glad Jesus straight up tells us the reason behind his words, rather than us having to figure it out. So what we're going to do tonight is take this offer of peace and break it down a phrase at a time so that as we understand it, we can better understand the rest of the passage and these last few chapters. And then at the end, we'll spend some time imagining and putting forward some ideas for what it would look like to live with that kind of peace, just like Perpetua and Felicity. So let's get into it. I have told you these things. And let's stop right there. What things? What things has he told them? What things has he said? Well, he's really referring to everything that he said since chapter 14. The, the entirety of this final conversation. I'm sure you can remember from sermons in recent weeks, but this conversation included things like the coming of the Holy Spirit, the exhortation to abide in Christ, a warning about the world hating believers, etc., etc. But we know those elements of what he said already. Let's not re-preach those sermons. Instead, let's focus on two of the core ideas that Jesus presents his disciples with in this passage. Two things the disciples can expect. Joy and relationship with the Father. Firstly, Jesus tells his disciples to expect joy. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified. And his disciples will understandably be despondent and afraid. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Verse 22, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In verse 21, Jesus likens their experience to that of a woman giving birth. Extraordinary pain gives way to joy so great the pain is forgotten. I don't know whether it's providential that I'm preaching on this passage a couple of weeks before my own wife giving birth. It feels like I should be able to offer some sort of personal insight uh, into this, but she hasn't actually given birth yet, so I'm kind of in the same boat as most of us. I've heard it's pretty painful, but I suppose we'll just have to wait and find out. You can check in on us in a few weeks to see if the baby's cute enough to make Diana forget her anguish. But regardless, we get the idea. Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to experience a grief and sadness akin to the pain of childbirth because he's going away, whatever the disciples understood that to mean. But when he comes back, when they see him again, they will have a joy like that when a child is born which no one will be able to take away. They should expect joy. Secondly, Jesus puts forward this idea of new intimate relationship with God the Father. Verse 23, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This connection with the creator of the universe, God the Father, which up until this point has been imperfectly mediated by law and ritual and repeated sacrifice and intercession, will now be 
perfectly intimate. A connection with God the Father, which is not a connection by association, but a direct connection. Yes, Jesus is the means by which one receives and experiences that intimacy. But once you have it, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent creator and sustainer of all things is the one you can call Father. He loves you. And whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he will grant you. Now, does that mean that Jesus is promising that God will give us whatever we want? Theologically and intuitively, we know that's not true. It's not how things work. But why not? Well, it comes down to asking for things in Jesus' name. When we do that, it means we're making a request in accordance and alignment with the name of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, his authority and his will. It's kind of like as a kid when I would ask mum to go on the Xbox and tell her that I asked dad and he said it was okay. I'm asking in the name of dad. And if me playing the Xbox is in accordance with his authority and will, I'm down for a solid 45 minutes of Shrek 2, the video game. But if maybe I was telling a lie and it wasn't within dad's will for me to play Shrek 2, the video game, then I'm not getting what I ask for. If it's within Jesus' authority and in accordance with his will, then when we ask, it will be given to us. That's what these verses mean. The disciples should expect intimacy with the Father. Joy and intimacy with the Father. And an extent to which separating these two things out from each other is completely distinct, is somewhat futile. In verse 23, Jesus tells his followers that intimacy with the Father will happen in that day, referring to the day they will experience that great joy, which is the day that they will see him again, which we know to mean his resurrection. So back to verse 33, that summarizing key verse we're looking at. When Jesus says, I have told you these things, these things refers to all that will happen as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. Great joy intimacy with the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, warnings about the world, exhortations for how to live, all stemming from Jesus' impending victory over death. Things the disciples were told to expect, but for us, are already here. They're not ideas to think about, but lived realities. Keep that in mind as we move forward. I have told you these things so that in me, in me, in Christ. And that should be ringing some bells from the sermon we heard a few weeks ago, the call to abide in Christ. Now for us it was a few weeks ago, for the disciples they would have heard this a few minutes ago. Christ is the vine, we are the branches, and the call is for us to abide in him. I'd encourage you to give that sermon another listen if you want a refresher. But briefly, to abide in Christ is through faith in him, to bear good fruit, obeying the Father, obeying Jesus, loving each other, living in a God-oriented, God-honoring way, abiding in Christ. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. I think often we can conceive of peace as just a lack of conflict. If there's not war, there's peace. But when the Bible talks about peace, it's a much more vibrant 
richer image. It's closer to the idea of completeness or wholeness, a sense that everything is the way it's meant to be. I think that although it looks different for everyone, we've all got some sense of what that's like. Moments or conceptions of a moment where either at the time or looking back in hindsight, you can say, this is the way things are meant to be. There's something about this. Not just happiness or excitement, but a contentedness, wellness, a deep sort of satisfaction. Like I said, it's, it's different for everyone. I feel it when I visit my grandparents. We see them for coffee sometimes, and afterwards, Diana and I sit in the car and go, there was, just, there was something about that, something right. I feel it when I'm lost in a fantasy novel. I remember feeling it when I was surrounded by family and friends on my wedding day, talking, laughing, eating. This is the way things are meant to be, whatever that is for you. But the disappointing thing about peace is it's fleeting. It doesn't last. We drive away from my grandparents' house and move on with our day. My phone buzzes and distracts me from my book. My wedding is a beautiful memory, but it's only a memory. Peace dissipates. and We try to recapture it or manufacture it. We're nostalgic for it, but it always fades, giving way to neutrality or even pain and brokenness. But what if it didn't? What if the moments of peace that we experience are actually shadows or glimpses of an everlasting and perfect peace? Friends, what if that completeness, that wholeness, that peace wasn't just a a fleeting sensation, but the state in which you lived your life. Because that's what Jesus is putting on offer here. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Jesus has put forward for his disciples all the wondrous joys that his finished work on the cross will accomplish so that knowing those things as they abide in him, obeying his commands, loving one another, they might have peace. Jesus offered peace to his disciples and that offer stands for all followers of Jesus, from Perpetua and Felicity to you and me. Knowing those same realities, living in the way that Jesus calls us to and enriching, soul-nourishing wholeness is available. Life and life to the full. Think about that for a second. Jesus isn't telling us to slog through the hardships of life, believing the right things about him in our heads so that we know the password to heaven when we die. He's offering a way of life that begets perfect completeness in the ones who live it now. Now that's not a guarantee of sinlessness, nor is it a guarantee that you're going to be healthy, wealthy and prosperous, but it's an offer of peace that's available even in the midst of the chaos of this world. Not a promise of peace, an offer of peace. 
the only thing promised in this verse is trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus knows the world is hard. He's not naively telling us to have peace while avoiding the hardships of life. He's saying that even in the midst of those hardships, peace is available. Amidst the frustrations and disappointments, you can have peace. When you get on a crowded tram and tap on your mic, but you forgot to top up, you can have peace. When you're applying for job after job and hearing nothing back, you can have peace. When you come to church and Jacob isn't preaching, you can have peace. When you come to church and Jacob is preaching, you can have peace. Amidst your deep anxieties and pain, you can have peace. When you've barely got enough money in your account to make it through the next week, you can have peace. If some of your closest relationships seem broken beyond repair, you can have peace. Whatever news you get from the doctor, you can have peace. Regardless of your situation, to know and experience and feel deep down that everything is all right, to have peace. But how does it work? Jesus is offering peace. But what does it look like to accept it? What do we need to understand? What conviction do we need to hold to be able to live that way? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. The conviction and worldview that undergirds this offer of peace from Jesus is the reality that he has already overcome the worst the world has to offer. He's defeated it, trampled it. He has the victory. Take heart. Don't worry. The things you suffer through can't actually hurt you. He's already defeated them. The reason we can have peace in this broken world is because the brokenness has been overcome by Christ. And through faith, as we abide in him, we have overcome it as well. That's where Perpetua's confidence came from, to kneel in the sand and help guide the soldier's hand to cut off her head. Death has been overcome. Sickness has been overcome. Worry has been overcome. Brokenness has been overcome. What's the biggest struggle in your life right now? The most potent source of pain or anxiety? Something that by most metrics would seem to be a barrier between you and having peace. Whatever you've brought to mind as I ask that question, Jesus has overcome it. He's won victory over it. He has lordship and authority over it. 
He has overcome the world. He says this with confidence before being arrested, tortured, humiliated and nailed to a cross to die. But he said it with confidence because he knew that on the other side of that death he would rise again. And he did. All the trouble and brokenness the world could muster were poured out on Jesus and were proven completely and utterly ineffective as he rose from the grave. And through faith in him, trusting that on the cross he paid the price for our sin, that victory is one that we join him in. Romans 6, Paul says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are united with Christ, in Christ. His victory over the world is our victory. He has overcome death, and so have you. He has overcome sickness, and so have you. He has overcome worry, and so have you. He has overcome brokenness, and so have you. Which is not to say that none of that will ever happen. Friends, in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart. He has overcome the world. He has told us these things so that in him we might have peace. So let's finish by thinking about what it looks like to put this into practice. We have access to peace, something we want, something we need, but something we have to choose. What does it look like to choose peace? I want to put forward from our passage tonight that choosing peace means two things. Remembering and abiding. Remembering and abiding. Firstly, remembering. I have told you these things. These things. We need to remember these things. Remember that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your advocate and your helper. Remember that you have direct access to the Father and a promise that he will grant you whatever you ask in the name of Jesus. Remember that in the resurrected Jesus you have a complete joy that no one can take away. Remember. And to remember, we need to be reminded through regular time in God's word, be reminded. Through encouraging one another with words of scripture, be reminded. Through being here at church, through small group, be reminded. In our modern distracted minds, we can often forget these simple but profound realities. So be intentional to prioritise your days, your weeks, your semesters around reminding yourself and reminding others of these things. Remember and be reminded. Secondly, abiding. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Our peace is in him. So we should be striving in all that we do to abide in him. 
He's the vine. We're the branches. Remain in him. Follow his commands. Love your brothers and sisters. Be diligent about putting sin to death. If you're feeling far away from the kind of peace that we've talked about tonight, but you're acutely aware of a a sin in your life that you're not dealing with, or ways that you could be loving others which you're intentionally avoiding, can I offer a gentle encouragement to, to sort out that sin? Love that brother or sister. Living with enmity or even apathy between fellow believers is is not abiding in Christ. Hiding or ignoring secret sins which continue to fester is not abiding in Christ. I'm I'm not saying that to condemn you or guilt you. I'm saying that because I want you, I want all of us to have this peace which is available through abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ looks like the abundance of good fruit that we bear as a family of God's people as we love one another, build each other up, and live lives that honour God and embody his character. A way of life through which we have peace. Remember and abide. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Life is not perfect. We know that. In this world we're going to have trouble. But even in the midst of the worst the world offers, we have access to a peace a completeness, a wholeness which supersedes any fear or pain. A peace which has empowered believers for 2,000 years to live boldly for Christ and sing in the face of death. Friends, choose peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the wondrous peace you offer us. Please would you work in us to make that peace a rich, lived reality. Help us to remember and to remind ourselves and others of the glorious wonders that Jesus' death and resurrection have accomplished. And be with us as we strive to abide in Christ as a branch in a vine. Help us to love one another and live in a way that brings you the honour and glory you rightly deserve. Bring your peace to bear in all our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.